Welcome to the ministry of the International Christian Assembly in Southeast Spain. We are here for the purpose of worshipping God and reaching others with love. We pray that as you listen, you will be inspired and challenged in your walk with God. Where I, where I come from, if you're getting gone in life, you come fr- you're, you're automatically in the metallic age. And that is, you've got silver hair, gold teeth and legs like lead. <laughs> what I'm going to speak to you about today is something that came back. When you're a pastor of a church and you're speaking every week, you, you sort of, well, it's easy in one sense because... You, you know what you're going to do. You normally go through a series and you're thinking, well, I know where I'm going here uh, next week, in more, 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 more often than not. And then, but when you're speaking on one-offs like this, it's much more difficult. And I was going to speak on a number of issues today, but this one topic seemed to come up over and over again. I couldn't get away from it. And maybe it's those of us who are in the metallic age. But it's not just for those of us who are in the metallic age. Today I'm going to talk about heaven. Heaven. You see, over the years, I've been intrigued and saddened by the way unbelieving people describe or dismiss life after death. That's a modern phenomenon that's happened in my lifetime. In the UK, it's happened here in Spain. It's happening with your family. Maybe it's happening with you. You do not take this final appointment seriously. Let me tell you, as a former social worker and a pastor for most of my life, you ought to. You ought to. In our postmodernistic modern society, there are all the cons that our parents and grandparents never had. Yes, I can even remember neighbors next door to us having gas lights. Do you remember that? I remember a time when we didn't have a washing machine or television. I remember that. I remember we had to mend our shoes, darn our socks. We didn't have the throwaway society then, did we? We had to make do. And what we ate on Sunday, we ate on Monday. (laughs) It was simple as that, wasn't it? That's how we lived. But in our most postmodernistic society, that has everything, this materialistic society that puts everything in these 70, 80, 90 years, but everything there, it's soul on the line for this time. You find that if you go to some churches today, sad to say, talk to some Christians, so-called Christians today, go to any RE section in school, and I used to be a governor of a very large, successful high school, they, they've done away with RE completely. And because, you know, people can't think about heaven. 
I've been uh, many people have passed away. They say things like this. Steve, I wish I would have prayed more. That's universal. I wish I would have prayed with my wife more. Men, you should pray with your wife more than I should. Wish I would have my, my face in the, in, the, in, the, in the book more, in the Bible more. They can have regret at that point. That's not the place to have regrets. That's the place to look forward with anticipation. That's what it is. If you live without regrets, that's how you'll die. In a materialistic society, they're taught this. Your grandchildren will automatically think this if they've been through the British education curriculum. What they're getting from Hollywood, what they're getting from books, what they're getting all around them on the computers is when you're dead, you are dead. It is the devil's greatest lie. It really is. There's a deep skepticism and ignorance of where heaven is. It's not up there. Hell is not down there. It's a different dimension all around us. And every now and again in the scriptures, like in Isaiah, the veil is torn open and allowed to see, we're allowed to see what goes beyond the veil. Sometimes people see this like John and Ezekiel in visions, indescribable visions. We'll look at it a bit later on. But people are desperately trying to convince themselves that this life is all there is because they don't want to answer to God at the end of their life. I've been there when atheists have passed away and have called me in normally three or four in the morning that time when pastors seem to get called in. And even atheists have said to me, where am I going after this? How can I answer God for my life when I've denied him these 60 odd years? They've said things like this to me now. Because we all have instinctively a notion that we've got to give an account for our lives. You, you, you can only continue to live a sinful life if you forget about eternity. It's impossible for a believer even to consider wanting to live in a place of all sin. Because why? A non-Christian loves sin before they love God like we did. It's as simple as that. And you and I sin because our sin comes before God. Endless pleasure to them is, well, try and get as much out of the body as you can. Try and get as much out of life as you can. A number of years ago, I was speaking to a multi-millionaire. He came to our church a few times. His name was Charles. He was a nice man. One day, I went to visit him, and we sat down, and we had a cup of coffee, and he said, you know what? He said, my life is so empty. I've bought all the things society said you should have bought. I've done all the things society, especially as a young man, society says you should do. And he said, I just can't get over the emptiness of it, Steve. The meaningless of it. 
He said, you know, there's been times I think about ending it myself. He just told me he just sold a business off for 10 million pounds. He had everything. But what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and then loses soul? Maybe there's people who think that God is like a big flowery figure with a beard somewhere that just doffs his cap and church is just... God says to people, just live as you want and you get to heaven in the end. Universalism. It mocks the cross. Doesn't it? The Savior come for a reason and he came to retrieve and to save and to rescue sinners. But only sinners. The self-righteous have their own God. What gives a true Christian delight? Let me tell you. What gives him or her real joy is what we saw in our reading in Revelation. It's this. Every tear from your eye. There shall be no more death. No more no more crying. There shall be no more pain. The former things have passed away. But that is only part of it. That is really only part of it. That's the small part of it. But it's good, isn't it? You know what? What gives the ultimate, the ultimate delight? Unfading glory undiminished bliss that makes even our best spiritual experiences here and now only small tasters of what is before us is one person. His name is Yeshua. Joshua. It means God's salvation. We call him Jesus. I wonder if you find it amazing that in John chapter 17, verse 24, this is the Lord in his high priestly prayer, just literally half an hour, an hour away, an hour and a half away from being arrested in the garden of Gethsemane, still in the upper room. As you know, John chapter, John's gospel, 1 to 13, covers three years. But 14 to 17 covers one evening, the final evening in the upper room. Here, Jesus prays for you. You were chosen before the foundation of the world. And in time, at the Lord's time of greatest distress, he does not think about himself. He thinks about you, which is incredible, isn't it? He thinks about you. What is heaven like? Well, the Lord wants you to be in heaven with him. Do you find that amazing? Because you know what you've done. And I certainly know what I've done. And many things I've forgotten, which God will remember. But even some of the things I've said and shouldn't have said, some of the things I've done, I thought, oh, what an idiot. Or what wickedness even. Those things you can't change or claw back and say, I wish I could put that away again. 
Despite all those things, from the moment you were conceived, Jesus Christ says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me, with me, where I am, they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Not that it talks about the Lord's existence, his eternal sonship of the Son of God, but actually the Lord saying, Father, I want these absolute failures who've been your greatest and my greatest offense. I want them to be with me in heaven so that they receive the greatest joy in eternity by seeing me in my full glory. You know what? You can get enough of, of, of discouragement, just like wave upon wave, isn't it, at times? You can never get enough of joy and encouragement. Heaven is a place like this. You see, heaven is a place where we're absent from the body. Absent from the body. You see, in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes to Corinthian church, his troublesome church, in chapter 5, verse 8. And he said that he was willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. At home with the Lord. Now, Paul's not saying Christianity like, it, like an insurance policy, which can easily be done. He didn't have a death wish, thinking, I want to be a martyr. Isn't it great? In AD 68, I'm going to be beheaded in Rome. He doesn't want that. He's not looking forward to that. But what he's saying is that he's absolutely certain that our consciousness, our soul, is immortal and goes on. He firmly believed that death ushers in a fuller, higher realm of abundant life, which we should be present before the king, the king of love, who loved you and me more than he loved his own life. I don't know about you, but can I ask you a question? How many people would die for you? could be embarrassing that we realize not many but what if one were to come from a mighty throne adored by every creature that he's ever created what if one were to say to you while you're at your lowest point in life while you're at your sickest while you're at your most unattractive point in life I came for you. Would you love that man? Would you listen to that man? Because he's speaking today to you. He also said in Philippians, while he was in prison, a letter from the inside, inside the nick, inside the jail, inside the prison. He's in Rome, but he writes, as you know, a number of prison letters. It's Paul at his best. When he's lowest, then he's highest. And he says this, knowing that his life could be on the line, he's about to go to Nero in AD 62. Nero, for some strange reason, didn't like the likes of me and you. 
It wasn't until AD 68 that Paul was executed by Nero's decree. But this time he got off. He was released. But he didn't know that at that point. He's just in a Roman prison. And he says this. He writes to the Philippian church. He says, But for me to live is Christ. And if I die, then I promise you, don't cry for me. It is gain for me. I've longed for this, he's basically saying. For him, all that is mortal will be swallowed up with immortality. And the curse of death is finally defeated and swallowed up in eternal life. He realizes, well, the actual act of dying is no holiday camp. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. It's not a holiday camp. Obviously, modern medicines can make it easier. God for that. But it's like a, a lady having a baby. Now, I confess that if I had to have a baby, and I suggest most men were like this, I suggest the human race would stop right now. No doubt about that. No doubt. If there's one thing I'm sure in life, I just couldn't do that. But ladies, you know, you go through it for the likes of me and the husbands here. And maybe we don't say them, but we are grateful. And on that day when it happened, we were absolutely stunned that you gave us this little boy or this little girl. Maybe at times you don't express that so much, but we were. Let me tell you, every man is. When he holds his child in his hands and kisses him, prays for him, we're all stunned. It's a miracle. The whole world would stop if one was done every, every hundred years, every child was born. But you know what? You know what? You look forward to having a baby in your arms. You go through all that because you, you're hoping that the baby will be alive, well, fit. You hope for that, don't you? And a Christian is that. Maybe you have to go through it. But you look what's before you, you look what's beyond the storm. That's what you do, that's what hope does. Hope will get you through this. The very least what you get from Paul, it is this. The heaven is gain. In other words, it's better than here. I can promise you this. You will not be disappointed. The Summeronius views of heaven I've come across in my lifetime. I'm just going to touch on two of them now very quickly. There's the old soul sleep. Well, the pseudo-American cult, Jehovah's Witnesses, started by Charles Taze Russell, as it did have its, its uh, headquarters in Brooklyn in New York, apparently. Maybe they've moved, I don't know. But, and also the Seventh Days Adventists, another thing that comes from the States. Sorry about that, Mary, but there we are. Those who hold this opinion, they claim that you go to a state of unconsciousness when you die. In other words, you don't feel anything. You're not aware of anything. It's just blackness. How scary is that? And I take that from John 11, 11, where Jesus says that Lazarus is asleep to his disciples. Remember that? So they build a whole theology more or less starting from this verse out. 
They are wrong. They've always been wrong. The great reformer, John Calvin, one of my famous uh, favorites in the Reformation, a man who was used by God to change Western history, world history, undoubtedly. He wrote a great thesis on this in 1534. It was completed in 1542, talking about the whole issue of soul sleep people in the Lutheran church then believed and then also the early Anabaptists believed. They were wrong. He was right. And he says, Jesus was just talking figuratively. The body might look as if it's sleeping, but the soul is alive. We are conscious. We are aware when we pass away. Also, in Revelation 14, they get it from this as well, chapter 13, verse 13. Heaven's described as a place of rest from, your, from all our labors. And that's where you get this thing that's happening in Christianity. He's now at rest. She's now at rest. It comes, in all likelihood, from Revelation 14, 13. Yet the Apostle John, in this vision, is not described as a place of unconscious sleep. No! But rather, he witnesses so Christian singing praises to God in heaven. If you want to know what your loved one is doing, I've just told you. Everything in scripture points to the fact that as soon as a person dies, they go before the judge of heaven and earth. And then at that point, a great separation. As we see this in Matthew 25, 31, a great separation. There'll be an awesome separation. You'll be there. I will be there. If you're a believer, praise God, the judge will be your savior and your good shepherd. And you'll be taken to one side to undeserved everlasting life. If you're not saved, truly born again, redeemed, filled with the Spirit, then there's another separation. I hate even to mention it, but it's true. There's also another place called Purgatory. This comes from Egypt, just over the Mediterranean, 2,200 years ago, did you know? It's been adopted by the Roman Catholic Church, as you know, for many years. Some of my family are in the Roman Catholic Church, and you know what? They still believe this. They still believe this. It's a nonsense. It is wicked. Many believe in a refining place that you could be sometimes for thousands of years. I don't want any of my loved ones to be in a place like this. Do you? It's a denial of the doctrine of justification through faith alone in Christ. It was abolished in the Reformation by the Reformers but even today, it's starting to creep back into so-called Protestant churches. You see, the Bible clearly teaches that when a person repents of their sin, believes in the atoning death, once and for all sacrifice of the only eternal Son of God, the Bible clearly teaches that at that point, a number of things happen. Instantaneous, whether you feel it or not, it happens in heaven. That's where it's important. First thing is, you are declared righteous. 
with the righteousness of Christ. I'll talk about that in a moment. You are immediately, immediately reconciled to a holy God. You are immediately adopted. You are a son and daughter of the Most High. You are children of mercy. You are a child of love. At that point, you have eternal life. It can never be distinguished. You are saved. Amazing. You haven't deserved any of it, have you? But you are saved. You're on the way to heaven. Oh, there'll be bumps in the road. There'll be ups and downs. That's what's called sanctification. There'll be a big bit of backsliding now and again. But he has promised, none shall pluck you from his hand. I trust him in that. Not even my own doubts and fears. But it means that you are never more justified than the day you were born again. You can never be more saved than that point. It's declared. He has declared it. It will be done. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. What is this? Well, it says, For our sake, God the Father made him, Jesus, his own dear son, the darling of heaven, to be sin, despite being absolutely perfect and sinless. That we, you and me, vile sinners in the sight, might become righteous of God. What is this? It's called double imputation. We're on the cross by faith. You and I, by faith, give him our sin. And the Lamb of God says, despite being innocent, the most innocent man ever, I will take this sin upon my shoulders and answer for it. And not only that, that's enough, you'd you say. But to be accepted by the Father, he then says, my righteousness and acceptability is now imputed to those who are nothing but guilty people. It's called grace. It's called grace. Sovereign grace. Let's not forget also the appearing of Moses and Elijah at the transfiguration in Mount Horeb. They were in spirit, but they were conscious. They were alert. As he stood either side of the Savior, just a short time before he's crucified. You know what they were doing? They were absolutely adoring him. I guarantee if you were there with a few disciples, they would have been looking at him. Just absolutely adoring. Knew what he was about to do. And even to them, it was nearly unbelievable what he was going to do for people like them and me and you. How about the thief on the cross? Here's a man on death row. Pinned to a wooden scaffold. He's dying. Difficult to breathe. Can't get any comfort. Can't get out of the pain. We all know what it's like not to get out of pain at times. Whatever you do, he can't do anything. He is naked. He's got no dignity like the Savior is naked. No dignity at all. You can do many things to a man, lady, ladies. You can knock him down and knock him down. And he'll still get up and still be a man. Oh, but you laugh at him. You make a show of him. You take away his dignity as a man. And you crush a man. 
That's why the Nazis took all clothing from people. That's why the Romans crucified people naked. My Lord went there for me at that time. And yet he spoke to a thief on the cross. Probably the greatest promise in the New Testament. This man knew he couldn't save himself. He's on the cross. He couldn't go, could he? What could he do? He couldn't go to the temple. He was banned anyway. What could he do? All he could do was cry out to a man who from head to foot was covered in blood with lacerations over his body, swollen face, where over 71 men punched him, slapped him, and spat in his face, brutalized. And would you put your faith in a man like that, your soul on the line for that? Yet faith seems deeper than the outward show. And he calls him Lord. To a Jew, that is almighty God. Remember me when you come to your kingdom. What did Jesus say? Today. You're not going unconscious. You're not going to purgatory. Today you shall be with me in paradise. What would you give for the Savior to say that to you today? And then there's visions of heaven. I'll go on a bit quicker if I can. Visions of heaven. And we see this in Ezekiel chapter 1, 4 to 28. And Ezekiel is in Babylon. He's been taken to Babylon with about maybe 100,000 or so Jews. And there he is, actually part of that particular culture. He's a prophet and he sees descriptions of heaven. Things, apocalyptic language, include symbolism. Ah, mystery. In chapter 1, the prophet Ezekiel gives us an astonishing description of what heaven is like. And this is how he describes it. He's transported into the very heart of heaven. And he does his actual best to describe the indescribable. But what does he say is in heaven? You know, he identifies more than anything else. That there's a throne in heaven. It's a mighty throne that no man can subdue or stand before. And then he goes on to describe, using various stones, jewelry, the rest of it, the glory that surrounds and builds this throne so high at the center of heaven. And then to his astonishment, he uses various Jewels, he uses all types of things just to try and express the beauty of what he's seen. Nothing like he's ever seen before. Indescribed, nothing like that on earth. And then, astonishment at the top on the throne. He sees what you saw before in verse 26. He sees a man. Who is that man? The pre-incarnate Christ. It's him. He is the glory, the adoration, the praise, the supreme blessing of heaven. It's him. If you turn to John's description of Rev- in Revelation, the first thing you notice if you read Revelation is a striking similarity. And he describes, John describes the last apostles to live, all the others are martyrs, point. He's a man in his 90s. And he's, in, he's actually, Christians are really good at going to prison, it seems to me. Look at the book of Acts. But here, here, 
describes also the same throne, which is at the center of the scene is always breathtaking, glorious, amidst this majesty and central to the book of a revelation is the same man. If you went to him today, if you touch his hands, you'd see nail marks there. If you touch his feet, you'd see nail marks there. If you kissed his brow, you'd feel where the crown of thorns was. If he did allow you to touch his side, you too, like Doubt and Thomas, could thrust your hand into his side today. He is the Savior at the very center of heaven. You know what? And many people have said to me, what is my husband doing in heaven, Steve? What is my wife doing in heaven? I've had people when babies have died, young ones have died, have said, what's my little Johnny? What's my little Joy doing in heaven? You know what? You know what they're, going to do, what they're doing in heaven? They're singing to the top of their voice right now. And they're saying this, in John chapter 5, the whole host of heaven is there. The elders, every angel, a messenger that serves him. Every Christian that's ever been born again. Everyone who's died prematurely like this. Every believer is there. And they're singing this, worthy. Worthy, they're saying, at the top of their voice, as if their lungs were bursting. Worthy. What are they saying worthy about? Is the Lamb. To receive power, riches, glory, and blessing. Mighty anthem goes on by shaking the very foundations of heaven. Let me tell you what your, your, your family is saying. What we will do if you're saved. You'll stand be, you'll be stand beside people you've never met, but you'll know them. Different tribes, colors, skins, different people from different classes in life. There's only one class in heaven, and that's saved. They'll be saying, blessing, honor, and glory to him who sits upon the throne, the Lamb forever. It's a new song. It's a great song. So we have a lamb on the throne. He's receiving glory, blessing, and true biblical Christianity is not, is not ritual. It's relational. What do we mean by that? It means that you know him. You know, Paul in Philippians, he says, I, I, used, to be, I used to be a great Jew, taught at the posher school, the Oxbridge, school of Gamal in Jerusalem. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I've got pedigree. I'm accepted in society. I was one of the elite. I've lost my family. I've lost my friends. And he goes on. I count them all but dung rubbish. Compared to the glory, the expressed joy image of seeing Jesus Christ. In other words, he thought it was worth losing to gain him. Paul says in verse 10, Philippians chapter 3, Oh, but to know him. 
Now, in the Greek language, which the New Testament's written in, there's one which says, yeah, you can know people intellectually like you know a man in history. Paul's not saying that. Paul's saying this, and this is vitally important as a close. Paul's saying it's to experience Jesus through his spirit. It's relational. So you must have to say that my beloved is mine and I am him. And his banner over me is love. It's not religion. It's relational. It's being born again. You have that relation when the spirit comes into you when you're born again. Gives you life. You know what? As I close... What is heaven like? Well, heaven is a place where the invisible God dwells in visible form in his beloved son with his people, a grateful people. It's a place where every tear shall be wiped away by the Savior himself. You'll not cry or weep or mourn in heaven. It's over. Every scar that life has given you. Every harsh experience that's brought you down to your If it's done, he sees it not as defeat. He sees it as a scar of honor. Every heartbreak will be washed away. All sin will be forgotten. And he'll give you a crown of righteousness, which is say he'll give you himself. It's a place where words like sin, death, are banished. There'll be no such thing as a hospital. No undertakers. No drugs to keep us alive. No, no going to the funeral and, and saying goodbye to a coffin. All those things are done away with. Because the Jesus says, says, I will make all things new. What's heaven like? An English Puritan by the unfortunate name of Thomas Lye. <laughs> he said this. Someone said to him, what's heaven like, pastor? Why don't you become a born-again Christian and find out for yourself? Don't. If you're not saved today, you're missing the, great, the greatest show on earth. You're missing Christ. Heaven or heaven without Jesus. You're missing the most beautiful person that's ever lived. The tenderest, the most approachable, humble, and yet mightiest person that's ever existed. I'd want to be with a person like that. I wouldn't want to face him as being unforgiven. I wouldn't want to face him as not being saved. And I certainly don't want to go to hell. If you have any doubts about your salvation, come and talk to me. Come and talk to Mary or Sue or somebody you trust. I'd love to talk to you. If you lack assurance, come and talk. If you want to know how to get to heaven, don't go out that door today. Come and talk. Come and talk. Cost you nothing to talk. Just come and talk. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father,
We thank you if you've saved us. We are children of mercy. We acknowledge this. We would never have sought you, but you came after us like the good shepherd you are. We do, Father, and we thank you from the depths of a pathetic word, a weak word, but it's all we have. We do thank you and we adore you for loving the likes of us. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. And we thank you for this. We've all got skeletons in the cupboard. We've all got a past we're embarrassed about. But you've said that you remove our sins so far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more because we've been justified through your blood and declared righteous. Lord, if there's any here who have doubts about their salvation, any here who are worried about where they're going for eternity, Lord, have mercy upon them as you did with me. And Lord, if you can save, save us, you can save them. And Lord, even today, pour your love upon them, we pray, and save them. For your glory's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the ministry of the International Christian Assembly, a ministry of AMG Spain and AMG International. For more information, please visit our website at www.icatorrevieja.org. This audio file is not copyrighted.